Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, there are enough storylines in the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise to make you lose sight of the big picture. The thing is, U.S. media consumers don't have to puzzle out if the assassins were Colombian, or if a Florida doctor bankrolled the plan, or if Moise's own bodyguards had it in for him and his wife. The long history of the U.S. using state force to kill Haitians and their aspirations is sufficient and appropriate context for current events. We'll talk about Haiti with Chris Bernadelle from the Black Alliance for Peace. Also on the show, cronyism between pharmaceutical companies and their ostensible government regulators is an infuriating fact of U.S. life, along with the obscene cost of drugs. Yet somehow the story of Adjud Kanumab takes it to a new level. We'll talk about what Pharma and the FDA call a breakthrough Alzheimer's drug, and what public advocates call an example of all that's wrong with the drug approval system, with Michael Carome, MD and director of the Health Research Group at Public Citizen. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. As we record July 14th, there is still uncertainty about what exactly happened in the early hours of last Wednesday, July 7th, when Haitian President Jovenel Moise was killed and his wife wounded. Reports have it that the assassins included 26 Colombians, some likely trained, as many Colombian military are, by the U.S. and deployed as mercenaries around the world, and two Haitian Americans— possibly with ties to Haitian oligarchies, possibly misled about the nature of their mission. It's also said that Moise's own guards had to have been involved, that the assailants yelled DEA as they attacked, and that a Miami-based doctor might be at the core of it all. Much will be made in U.S. news media about these particulars and the murkiness around them. What we know more clearly is the century-old history of U.S. intervention in Haiti, the reasons routinely offered for such intervention, and the results. That narrative is reflected in the New York Times' July 8th report, with a thumbnail telling readers that Haiti's, quote, morass has for decades put it near the top of a list of nations, such as Afghanistan and Somalia, that have captured the world's imagination for their levels of despair. Close quote. That's coupled with a dramatic image, a shadowy silhouette of a woman receiving a box of food aid, as the caption tells us, after the 2010 earthquake. In case you missed it, the world gives, Haiti takes. And yet, despite being propped up, as the piece had it, by vast amounts of humanitarian assistance, Haiti continues to be a chaotic mess, explaining why, as the Miami Herald editorial board put it, the U.S., quote, has no choice but to take the lead to stabilize Haiti, close quote. The Washington Post called for a swift and muscular intervention. So far not in evidence in U.S. media coverage, regular Haitian people 
who might have something more complicated to say outside of the acceptance of the brutish midnight murder of officials and acceptance of the brutish intervention of outside governments. Chris Bernadelle works with the Black Alliance for Peace, Haiti and the Americas Committee. He joins us now by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome to Counterspin, Chris Bernadelle. Hi, thanks for having me today. Well, a Guardian piece describes fears that Haiti is now, quote, lurching into a new phase of political and social upheaval, close quote. Not that there can't be ever new flavors of upheaval, heaven knows, but it's not a matter of things in Haiti suddenly taking a turn for the bad. I wonder if you could talk about what was going on in Haiti on July 6th before these events that listeners might understand as context for what came after. Yes, the Black Alliance for Peace released a press release on July 6th regarding the United States, the OAS, and the UN support for unconstitutional actions that were being taken by the de facto government of Jovenel Moise, the illegitimate government in Haiti at the time. We released that press release to shine a light on the U.S.'s support for Jovenel Moise, even though he had been ruling the country by decree since January 2020 and had been trying to push through with the referendum that had been rejected by every sector of Haitian civil society and by the masses of people. The people in Haiti had been protesting consistently starting in 2018 with protests against Jovenel Moise because of the Petro-Caribe scandal, which we can talk about, where billions of dollars were embezzled, dollars that were meant to go to the development of Haitian infrastructure, Haitian public health and public safety infrastructure. So the situation in Haiti on July 6th, when we released that press release, was one where the United States had been supporting their ally, the de facto ruler, Jovenel Moise, who had been ruled by decree in a country where the parliament had been dismissed, where Supreme Court or High Court judges had been arrested, and where there had been numerous massacres and killings of human rights lawyers, activists. And over the eight days between June 25th to June 30th, Haiti was subjected to increased state-sponsored violence, increased gang violence. There were killings in the capital city of Port-au-Prince of up to 60 people. A notable and prominent human rights activist and feminist, Antoinette Duclair, was murdered, as well as Diego Charles, who was a journalist. So the situation in Haiti up until that point was a volatile situation, and the people in Haiti were, up until that point, rising up and struggling against a de facto regime that had been acting unconstitutionally and that had been sponsoring massacres throughout working class and poor neighborhoods in the capital city. Well, before we talk about the U.S. role there, maybe take a minute to explain the Petro-Caribe scandal and the role that that plays and continued to play in terms of the Haitian people's understanding and relationship with officialdom there. What was that Petro-Caribe story? The Petro-Caribe Fund was the result of a deal between Venezuela and Haiti in 2008 between Hugo Chavez and Rene Perval. Basically, the Petro-Caribe Fund was funded by Venezuelan oil cells to 
Haiti that were given at a very good rate and also allowed Haiti to use much of that money to develop the country and only have to pay it back at a very low interest rate over a long period of time. So this fund was meant to help the Haitian people develop the country and could have been used to really support the country and help the country recover from the 2010 earthquake that rocked the capital. But after that earthquake, after the destruction that it caused in the country, the political situation in the country was also in a difficult situation. And most notably for this story, we have to look at the way that the United States State Department intervened and exercised control over the Haitian political situation, where Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton, was directly involved in selecting Michel Martelly to be the runner-up or to be the second-place candidate in elections. And Michel Martelly and the PHTK party came to power. Jovenel Moise was handpicked by Michel Martelly. So if we look from that time and that situation up till now, we can see directly how the U.S. was involved and played a major role in setting up the political situation that we have now in Haiti. It's really hard to overstate. Politico once had a headline calling Bill and Hillary Clinton the king and queen of Haiti. She was Secretary of State, as you note, in 2009, and in charge of, among many other things, under the auspices of development and help, suppressing a rise in the minimum wage to encourage specifically garment manufacturers to invest, but basically trying to call for foreign investment as the way forward in Haiti. But we have receipts from that. We understand how that intervention paid off. And Bill Clinton, of course, was um, in charge of the so-called humanitarian response to that 2010 earthquake. We saw what happened, you know, whether we call that intervention humanistic, humanitarian, or military, it didn't do what it claimed it was going to do by any stretch of the imagination in terms of actually helping or developing or supporting Haitian civil society. So, you know, it is what it is. But to hear now the idea of U.S. intervention being the automatic response to problems in Haiti, I don't know to ask for your reaction, you know, but uh, the very idea that military intervention or intervention at all from the United States would be kind of the first recourse in this situation in the wake of the assassination. I mean, what do you even make of that? When we see in the media that Haiti is calling for U.S. intervention or Haiti is calling for U.S. troops, first you have to recognize that the government that's in place in Haiti right now is not a legitimate representative of the Haitian people. Like I mentioned before, Jovenel Moïse had overstayed his constitutional mandate and had been ruling the country by decree for some time. The Haitian people were rising up against that. And after his assassination, the United Nations Special Envoy for Haiti, Helen Lelim, on July 8th, released a statement saying that Haiti's prime minister, who was due to be replaced that week before Jovenel Moïse had been assassinated, he was due to be replaced by Ariel Henry. But the United Nations Special Envoy for Haiti, Helen Lelim, she put out a statement on July 8th that Haitian Prime Minister Claude Joseph would be the new president just one day after the assassination of Jovenel Moïse. And now 
normally, constitutionally, the head of the Haitian Supreme Court, the high court in Haiti, is supposed to replace the president in situations like this. But that gentleman died supposedly of COVID-19 just recently. So this was an extra constitutional situation, but there was no constitutional precedent for the U.S. to come in and say that Claude Joseph would be the president until elections. So the U.S. was involved directly with supporting Claude Joseph taking that position. But then also when Claude Joseph comes out and calls for U.S. support, U.S. troops, we also have to remember that what's been recently reported on as well, Claude Joseph has ties to the United States going back to 2003-2004 in the time of the coup against President Jean Bertrand where Claude Joseph was a member of a group, a student group, that was created with the support of the NED, the National Endowment for uh, Democracy. So this is someone who the U.S. seems to be comfortable with and supports, and they stepped in and supported that he would be the president upon the assassination of Jovenel Moïse. And that decision came after a closed-door U.N. Security Council meeting that had been called on Haiti. And at the Black Alliance for Peace, we put out a statement questioning who gave the United Nations Special Envoy the kind of power to make that kind of determination for the people of Haiti. Right. So this is, this is more of what we've seen throughout the history of Haiti, going back to 1915, where under similar pretext, the United States invaded Haiti and occupied the country for 19 years. These closed-door meetings in which leaders are tapped, this is presented as developing democracy. It's bizarre. It's a bizarre understanding of the word and what it means. Well, okay, so Brett Wilkins at Common Dreams brought together some of the history that a lot of U.S. listeners and might not know about how Haiti was the site of the world's only successful nationwide revolt of enslaved people, you know, the first black republic, an inspiration around the world, and an alarm to, among others, George Washington, who wrote to the French minister in 1791, promising to aid the French, quote, to quell the alarming insurrection of the Negroes, close quote. The U.S. didn't recognize Haiti till 1892. And then, of course, as you've just mentioned, Woodrow Wilson ordering an invasion in the name of stability, you know, familiar terms, in 1915, an occupation that went on till 1934. And I just say all of this to say that when you only learn about Haiti from U.S. news media, it's a country of weakened, despondent, chaotic people. And yet there's such a history of Haitian civil society and resistance and support for one another and mutual aid. And I just wonder if you could answer... What would support from the diaspora and from U.S. citizens, real support for Haitian civil society, what would that look like now and in the coming days? Folks are going to be barraged with a lot of information and names that they've never heard. And I just wonder what questions would you have folks keep in mind as they absorb this coverage now of Haiti as a country that's perpetually in chaos, where no one knows what they want, no one knows how to do anything, what would the Haitian people, civil society, like, just for example, U.S. citizens to hear or to know or to think about? First off, would be exactly like what you said, just to be vigilant and to fight against, stand up against 
and call out these calls for U.S. occupation and further U.S. intervention in the country. Because like we talked about before, the U.S. has been directly involved and occupying Haiti sporadically since 1915. And we can look at 2004, the MINUSTA mission of the U.N., and today the BINU mission of the U.N., where they have direct involvement in the Haitian political system and over Haitian society. So people here, if they're allies of the Haitian people, have to support them in, in their calls to be allowed to come up with their own solutions independently of U.S. intervention, of U.N. intervention, or of OAS intervention. The Haitian people are organizing. They have been organizing for the past couple of years intensely, and there have been demonstrations and protests in the country that have been organized by grassroots organizations that have ties to the working class people of Port-au-Prince, have ties to the agrarian workers in the provinces, and are developing a movement that has threatened United States interest, imperialist interest in the country. So we have to stand up against these calls for occupation, these calls for intervention, and we have to support the Haitian people's right to self-determination and for them to be allowed to develop their own process democratically from the grassroots to come up with solutions and a just transition. This current government is illegitimate and the Haitian people are not looking for foreign countries, for foreign powers to impose a new system or impose elections or impose a new constitution on them. The Haitian people are trying to organize solutions on their own and us here in the belly of the beast here in the United States, we have to stand up and fight so that the Haitian people can have the space to do that. We've been speaking with Chris Bernadelle of the Black Alliance for Peace. They're online at blackallianceforpeace.com slash Haiti. Chris Bernadelle, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform announced an investigation in late June. And earlier this month, the acting head of the FDA called for a probe from the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services. The subject? The FDA's accelerated approval of the drug aducanumab, whose maker, a company called Biogen, claims it's effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Some 6 million Americans are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and aducanumab was the first treatment approved in nearly two decades. The problems, though, run from the drug's price tag, an outrageous $56,000 a year, to the process by which it received FDA approval, even after being rejected by the agency's own advisors. Our next guest has been calling for investigation for months now. Michael Carome is an MD, as well as director of the Health Research Group at Public Citizen. He joins us now by phone from Virginia. Welcome to Counterspin, Michael Carome. Thank you for having me. Well, I keep seeing the word controversial, but really there seem to be very few people who think this story is anything but highly problematic. What are just the key elements of what went on here that merit our concern? Sure. But, you know, there are so many things wrong with the FDA's decision, reckless decision, to approve aducanumab for treatment of Alzheimer's disease. It's sometimes hard, hard to decide where to begin. But two things. First of all, the FDA's decision really showed a stunning disregard for science and eviscerated the agency's standards for approving new drugs. 
And because of that, because of this reckless action, the agency's credibility has been irreparably damaged. There is not evidence that this drug provides any clinically meaningful benefit. And that was clear from a review of, of data from the major clinical trials that was presented at a meeting of outside experts at the FDA convened, and it's called an advisory committee. And the group of experts essentially unanimously agreed that there was not evidence that this drug provides benefit to patients with Alzheimer's disease. More troubling, it became apparent last year to us and I think to the public that the FDA inappropriately collaborated with the maker of the drug, Biogen, in analyzing data from the clinical trials of the drug. That, and those trials actually were stopped early after an initial review of the data showed that it was unlikely that if we continued the trials to completion, we're not going to find that the drug works. And yet, FDA subsequently worked hand-in-hand with Biogen in a very inappropriately close collaboration to reanalyze data from those trials in a way that was biased and slanted in favor of Biogen's position. And so that inappropriately close collaboration really seemed to be, to us, unprecedented. And it fundamentally undermined the integrity and independence of the FDA's review. Nevertheless, the FDA proceeded to approve the drug despite that unanimous opinion from its outside experts and the lack of data that this drug works. Now, when you talk about inappropriately close, I understand, and some of this comes from the health news site STAT, some of this information, there was at least one meeting that was kind of off the record between an FDA official and someone from Biogen. So in other words, just the type of thing people worry about when they think about regulatory capture, meeting behind closed doors. The FDA is meant to have a clear eye on on this sort of thing, right? But at least one meeting happened that folks thought was beyond the pale even. Absolutely. There were public disclosures by Biogen and press releases and presentations and in the briefing document from this advisory committee meeting that clearly signaled to us an inappropriately close collaboration. But, but there were new stunning details disclosed just a couple of weeks ago in this staff issue reference where early on, back in, in 2019, March 2019, that's when the trials were stopped and the Biogen decided we're not going to pursue developing this drug. And then just a few weeks later, the chief scientist for Biogen has an off-the-record meeting with Dr. Billy Dunn, the director of the Office of Neuroscience at the FDA that approves Alzheimer's disease drugs or reviews them. They had an off-the-record meeting in which they sort of came up with a plan to push forward with trying to resurrect the drug despite the failed clinical trials. That subsequently led to a meeting between Biogen staff and FDA staff in June of 2019 which was followed, according to the stat piece, by three months of nearly daily communications and meetings between FDA staff and Biogen staff, in which they conducted jointly analyses and reviews of the clinical trial data, and that's the data that was used to support approval of the drug. And those same people at the FDA who were involved in this three-month collaboration, you know, those are the same people then who had to turn around and then review the application with that data and make a decision about whether the drug should be approved. And they were no longer independent. They were no longer objective reviewers. They were no longer objective regulators. And that completely undermined the review process. And that's why we call it multiple times now for an investigation, independent investigation by the Office of the Inspector General of HHS. Well, that's what I kind of wanted to, to draw you out on. What more broadly could be the impact of rushing this drug without 
clear proof of benefit, but we do know of side effects, for example, rushing it to market and what could be the impact maybe on other Alzheimer's treatments, for instance, or on, as you're saying, on the FDA and its reputation itself. It seems like investigation or no, the repercussions from this are quite serious and lasting. They are. So first, the FDA has lowered its standard for approving drugs like this. Uh, And other companies are going to take advantage of that and be able to rush other drugs to market where the evidence is lacking that they truly provide meaningful clinical benefit. Secondly, there are millions of patients in this country potentially eligible for this drug. And we have millions of patients and families who now maybe have hope that this is a sort of a a cure, significant treatment for them, and it's not. So it raised, it has raised false hope for millions of patients and their families who desperately want a, a treatment that works, but we don't have evidence that this is the answer to that. And finally, the, the Biogen has priced the drug at $56,000 per year per course of treatment, and, and this treatment could go on for years. And that is going to cause significant threat to the financial stability and sustainability of the Medicare program, right. which will pay you know most of these people who are eligible our Medicare beneficiaries, and because of the significant co-pays of such an expensive drug, this is going to bankrupt patients and their families who think this is, you know, a drug they really want. Well, let me just ask you, finally, I've read that it's quite rare for HHS's IG to investigate the FDA, much less a particular decision. Are there ways forward from what are clearly systemic or structural problems here? You know, I'm reading about HR3, for example, that would give the HHS secretary the ability to negotiate prices. That seems like almost the smallest thing that could happen. But are there bigger things that you would like to see change as a result of this problem? Sure. So what's fundamentally needed is a change in the leadership of FDA. Under Janet Woodcock, who is now the acting commissioner of the agency, and, and she took that position at the beginning of the Biden administration. And previous to that, she was, over a period of three decades, the director of the center of the FDA that reviews and approves new drugs. She has fostered, over her three decades, an ever cozier relationship between her agency and pharmaceutical companies. And that has resulted in regulatory capture of the agency by the pharmaceutical industry. She often refers to the agency as being a partner with industry, a partner, that they work collaboratively. And and, and she actually defended the collaborations that occur between her agency and companies like Biogen. So she needs to be removed. We called for her resignation in a letter to the Secretary of Health and Human Services last month. And we need to put in in her place a a leader who is more aligned and committed to protecting public health and not the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. All right, then, we'll end on that note. We've been speaking with Michael Carome, director of the Health Research Group at Public Citizen. You can find their work online at citizen.org. Thank you so much, Michael Carome, for joining us this week on Counterspin. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. You can learn more about FAIR on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.